We are continuing in the book of Hebrews uh, today, and I would like to read most of, thank you very much, uh, most of Hebrews chapter 4. As I mentioned last week, Hebrews 3 and 4 are kind of like one, one idea, one thought, um, and, it, and it's, it's hard to break it up, um, but we're doing this sort of in two parts, so you can think of this as sort of part two um, from last week. Uh, and I would like to, just in that same vein, kind of read a few verses ahead, uh, excuse me, back uh, to prepare. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, I'll, I'll start reading there, and then we'll continue in through... Uh, verse 13 of chapter 4. So Hebrews 3, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news and failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. God, I pray that you would open up your word today that we might understand the rest that you are offering us. And may we, by the blood of your son Jesus that we just reflected on, may we enter that rest as you offer it to us. We pray in your beautiful name for your glory and to build your kingdom. Amen. When we look at that phrase in verse 9 as it jumps out, 
so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What comes to mind? What, what do you think of when you think of Sabbath rest? One of the things that I think about is when we lived in Germany, we lived in a, in a village that had some of these Sunday laws on the books. All of the shops were closed. You couldn't mow your lawn on a Sunday. You couldn't play loud music. You certainly couldn't run a saw or work on anything or hammer or anything like that and make any loud noise. There were laws about how long your dog could bark for on a Sunday, and you would be fined for it. Luckily, we did not have our dog at the time. Otherwise, we would be very poor indeed. Maybe you grew up at a time when there were Sunday law. You knew, oh, there, there are no shops open on Sunday. Or maybe you come from a tradition where mom and dad said, no, we don't do that. It's Sunday. We're, we're going to rest on Sunday. And there is still kind of a, a debate about what do we do with Sunday? What does this Sabbath rest mean? And some faith traditions even argue, well, Sunday isn't the Sabbath. We should still have our rest day on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And that's, you know, and, and there are these debates in the way that we think about this and what we do on Sundays. Well, today, what I want to do is Look at how Jesus kind of turns this idea of a Sabbath rest on its head a little bit. And how the author of Hebrews, directly from the teaching of Jesus and using illustrations from the Old Testament, wants to sort of challenge our perspective of what Sabbath rest means. And this idea of Jesus himself inviting us into God's rest. Now, the author of Hebrews is doing this because he or she is trying to get us to understand that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And the author is constantly using metaphors and illustrations and analogies from the Old Testament, mostly because the audience would have been very well-versed with all of these stories. The author only has to kind of briefly mention them and, in, in, and does so in a way that's like, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And it, it requires us to do a little digging and make sure that we are familiar with these stories. But the author, make no bones about it, is trying to convince you Jesus is better than anything else you could ever worship. And Jesus himself is redefining what this Sabbath rest means. We even see this in the Gospels as Jesus is constantly redefining the people's idea of a Sabbath. Little pop quiz. Nine of the ten commandments are repeated verbatim in the New Testament. Do you know which one isn't? Number four, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Some of you were like, honor your father and mother? No, oh, right, no. <laughs> Jesus, in fact, is constantly butting heads with the religious establishment. There's this time in Matthew chapter 12 where on the Sabbath they're walking through and they're picking food and eating it and the Pharisees are very upset. Oh, you're not supposed to, it's the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? That's so not what the Sabbath is about. It's not about you're not allowed to get food for yourself. And he uses a couple of examples from the Old Testament of when people still got food. He's like, you guys just don't get it. 
And at the very end of this passage, he even makes a bold claim saying, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this all comes, this this little uh, story in Matthew chapter 12 comes immediately after Jesus' teaching with his disciples. It's the verses that Emma read just a few minutes ago where Jesus is saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is almost as if Jesus is saying the Sabbath is not some ritual that we have to follow all of the rules about. The Sabbath is about entering God's rest, and I am that rest. I will give you that rest. I will usher you into intimate rest with God because Jesus invites us into God's rest. And so when we look at Hebrews chapter 4, the author is sort of giving this sermon almost about what it means to enjoy God's Sabbath rest and to enter his rest and how we can, because of Jesus, do that. And remember that Hebrews is very, very logical. It is structured like a sermon where this point leads to this point leads to this point. It's actually one of the reasons why it's so hard to break it up from week to week. Because even if you look at the section that I read here, you can look at the first words of the verses or the paragraphs and you see this kind of logical language. For, therefore, for, for, therefore, for, since therefore, for, so then, let us therefore, is constantly kind of saying, hey, this is because of this and that leads to this and that leads us to there and in conclusion. And so he's kind of drawing us along in this way of a sermon. And remember, if you'll recall from last week, we are looking at Psalm 95, this psalm that would have been very familiar to his audience because it is a psalm that is used within Jewish liturgy. It is often the psalm that is sung about entering God's rest that ushers in the Shabbat on a Friday night. When when the Jewish people would get together on a Friday night and begin their Sabbath rest, they would sing a song, and it was often this one, Psalm 95. In fact, the, the uh, Shabbat Haggadol, the, the great Sabbath, which is the Sabbath right before Passover, one week before Passover, this was the liturgy. Every year they would come together and everyone together would sing this psalm and get in the mindset of what it meant to enter God's rest. And so when the author references this psalm, the people know and understand what we're talking about. And the author kind of uses these phrases from the psalm, and they're just little phrases about tempting and testing and rebellion that immediately would have the audience thinking to specific stories. And we looked at a couple of those stories last week when we talked about Meribah and Massah, what we see in Psalm 95, and we looked at Exodus chapter 17 as well as Numbers chapter 20, But there's a phrase that is used there, the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And when the author says the rebellion, the audience absolutely would all be thinking of the same story that comes from Numbers 13 and 14. And today we are going to spend a lot of our time looking at this story in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You can go there if you like. 
I have tried to, as best I can, have the verses up behind me as we read them, um, and then I will fill in the gaps and do my best uh, to remain faithful to this. But it's a story that I, I trust many of you are familiar with, uh, but it does need a little bit of a brush up for us, where right before they are to go into the land of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea, what we talked about last week, God comes and he has a mission for the people to spy out the land. And it starts like this in Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. I want to pause and make just one observation right here. Notice the tense that is used. He does not say, which I have given or I gave to the people of Israel. He could have very easily this hundred years, of, years ago, you know, I, I gave this land to Abraham. But he said, I am giving, present tense, active, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. And that's it. That's all of God's instructions for what to do. He says, I want you to go and check out this land that I'm giving you, and I want everyone represented, so someone from each tribe. That's it. That's the end of God's instructions. And then we get to where Moses comes, and he picks someone from every tribe, and we, we have them listed and who their fathers are. And then Moses says this to them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, this is verse 17, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. Great, good. So far, a very faithful transmission of God's instructions. God said, I want you to go and check out this land that I'm giving you. And Moses says, hey, go and check out this land. And it would be great if he stopped there. He doesn't, however. He keeps going in verse 18. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many, where the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are in camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees or not. And it's like, holy cow, okay, wait. If I'm one of these spies, it's going, oh, I signed up just to check out the land, and suddenly I have a whole list of objectives that I have to get into. I thought I was just checking out the land, and you're asking me to look at all of these things. I need to bring an arborist in here. I'm checking out the trees. What is all of this? And already it tips Moses' hand a little bit at where his perspective is. God says, I want you to check out this land that I'm giving you. Moses is thinking, how do we get this land? Are the people there? Uh, you know, what, what about their strength? Are they fortified? Do they live in cities? Are, is our position you know, going to be good and defensive? Are there a lot of trees? Or are we going to have to go through the foot? And, and already you kind of see Moses priming the pump to color their perspective on things. It makes me feel a little bit, every now and then, my wife will say, hey, can you go to the store and get some sour cream or something like that? It's like, okay, great, yes, I can do that. And on my way to the store, I get 15 text messages that say, oh, and tortilla chips. Oh, and we're all out of tomatoes. Hey, can you check if eggs are a good price? Hey, do we have milk? And, you know, and it's this and this. And then I'm going, okay, okay, yeah, I'll do that too. I'll do that too. And I'm in line and I'm going, is there anything else? Last chance. Yeah, can you see if they have any fruit? 
It's the same thing here where Moses is going, I want you to look at all of these things. And already it's kind of priming the pump that colors the people's perspective, where instead of looking at what God wants them to look at, is the land good? They're asking all of these questions about, are we going to be able to get the land? And what it leads to is the people coming back, and maybe you've heard this story before about the ten spies and the two spies. Uh, Twelve men went to spy out Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good. What do you think? that? Am I the only? Has anybody? No? I sound like a lunatic right now. Okay. There you nod. Thank you. Thank you for that. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they go into the land and they focus on what God tells them to focus on. Is the land good? But too many other people are thinking the same way that Moses is. How are we going to get this land? And so what happens is a minority report. Not that one. That one. Joshua and Caleb come back, and they say, guys, this land is fantastic. Look at this fruit. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey is everything that we have dreamt about and more. And what's more, God said he is giving it to us. Let's go and take it. And the other 10 spies, they go, yeah, but the people there are so strong. They're giants. They're fortified. They're they're huge. They make us look like grasshoppers. And in fact, they start to spread. They, they, They lie. And they say, yeah, the land is bad because of the people that are in there. When that's not even close to what God had asked them to look at. And there is this sense of them going, yeah, sure, it's a great land, but I don't know how we're gonna take it. And God going, what are you talking about? I am, I'm giving it to you. I have already taken care of that part of it. All I want you to do is to enter the land that I am giving you. And this is actually what the psalmist David describes. Rest, as it is used in Psalm 95 and in much of the Old Testament, is this word that means resting place. And it came to be known and understood that when someone said, enter God's rest, they meant the land. They meant the land of Israel, of Canaan, that God had promised to Abraham. And he said, I'm giving it to you guys. All you need to do is go in and take it. And still the people just don't do it. And they rebel. And here's this rebellion. And they say, no, we should have died in Egypt. We want another leader to take us back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. What a dumb, dumb thing to do. They want to go back to Egypt. And God basically says, "Uh uh-uh, no. You know, I've had it. You guys are cut off. And if you jump down into chapter 14 of Numbers, starting in verse 11, says this, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all of the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. They have seen me time and time again provide. 
You said the water is bitter. I made it sweet. You said, oh no, we're getting bit by these snakes. I, I, I made a way out. You said there's no way across this Red Sea. I split it for you to walk as if it were dry land. You said we have nothing to eat. I gave you food from heaven and all you have to do is pick it up. Time and time again, I have shown you I am more than capable and still you don't believe me? And this is why we talked last week about the core issue of sin being disbelief. At the very center of the Israelites' disobedience here is an unbelief, is a doubt that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he would. And God says, that's it. Because of your sin, you no longer get to enter this land. And Moses, (laughs) this disbelief really... (laughs) really makes the next part quite ironic because Moses goes before God and when he advocates before God, he quotes back to God his promise from Exodus 34, from when he was up on the mountain and saying, here's who I am. And now, this is Moses talking to God, and now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And you have to imagine God going, oh, oh, now you want to believe I am who I say I am? Now you want to believe that I'm going to do what I promised I would? Which is it? You unbelieving, faithless people. And the punishment still stands. The consequence is the same in this story wraps up with God pronouncing this judgment on almost everyone in Egypt except for the two spies, Caleb and Joshua. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. They don't get to go in because they didn't believe. I said, here it is. All you have to do is to to take it. And they said, well, I don't really think you're just giving it to us. And this is what the author of Hebrews is referencing when he quotes Psalm 95. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that rest that he's talking about is the land that they refused to enter into. And so there's something interesting that's happening here. The author is taking these stories from Psalms and even further back into Exodus and Numbers, and he is applying them to them in their context, then and there, hundreds of years later. And he's saying this rest still stands. That was verse 1. He says, this rest, this rest is still there. Or verse 3, we enter, present tense, that rest. Verse 6, it remains for some to enter that rest. Jump down to verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest. And he says it even using this, this term, today, as long as it is called today. It is still valid. Remember how God was using that tense? Not I have given, but I am giving today. Right now, I am offering this rest to you. 
Now, the reason that we can do that, the reason that the author is able to say this is still valid today, I can take these stories from hundreds of years ago and say this applies to you today, he explains that in just a minute, and we'll get there in just a minute. But before we do that, I think there's a very important question that we need to ask. And it is, what kind of rest are we talking about? Because I don't think the author is talking about the land specifically. I don't think he is talking about re-entering this promised land of Canaan. This is a Jewish diaspora living all over the Roman Empire where there is great persecution. In fact, we're only a few years away from the destruction of the temple and basically the, the Rome, or excuse me, Jerusalem being totally emptied of its Jewish population, decimated. And, and the author is not saying, no, we have to go and re-enter the land. He's talking about a different kind of rest. And so what kind of rest are we talking about? There's a couple of different kinds of rest. There's a kind that I think I usually think of first, and maybe you jump to when we think of rest, where we rest because we're tired. We're exhausted. We are human beings. We are broken and fallible, and we need rest because we're weak, and that rest strengthens us. We've been working hard. Our energy is drained. We need rest. But I don't think that's the kind of rest that the author is mentioning. And I say that because multiple times in chapter 4, he compares this rest that we ought to enter to God's rest on the days of creation. Look at verses 3 and 4. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Jump down to verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And now, for not the first time, even in this letter to the Hebrews, the author kind of alludes to the work of creation at the very beginning of Genesis. Where in Genesis 1, we see God create the universe and everything in it in six days, and on that seventh day, he rests. And so if we're asking what kind of rest are we talking about, let me ask you this, church. Did God rest because he was tired? Did God rest because he was tired? We can do better than that. <laughs> no. Does God get tired? Did God rest because he was weak? Did God rest because he went, whew, that really took a lot out of me. I just, I need to sit out and let me close my eyes for 20 minutes and then I'll be good. Does anybody ever believe that when your parents, I, let me just rest my eyes for 20 minutes. <laughs> I'll start a clock, sure. Is that why God rested? No. There is a different kind of rest. There is a rest that comes once a job is done. When God completed his, his creation in six days, he stepped back and he sat down and he admired it and he said, that is good. And in the same way, maybe you've been working on a project. You, you've got something, your, your lawn and you're doing all the trimming and stuff or you're working on a project and, and when you're finished, you just, oh man, that looks good. You want to sit and admire it. Grab a drink and say, wow, that's a good job. 
My wife will spend dozens and dozens of hours uh, putting, putting effort and energy and resources into a quilt. And when she is done with a quilt, I'm telling you, it is time to stop and rest and admire that quilt. And she comes, hey, come and look at this. It's done, it's done. And she takes pictures of it and sends it to her mother and other people and say, look at this beautiful thing. This is taking me dozens and dozens of hours and it's finally done. This is the kind of rest that the author is referencing. And it is that same idea as God saying, what do you mean you can't take the land because the people are strong? I have already done that. I have already managed this. I have already taken care of this part of the story. All you have to do is take it. All you have to do is enter it. All I'm asking you is, is it good land? Yeah, it is. And that's where the author of Hebrews comes here and says, we can enter that same rest because the work has already been completed by Jesus. We can enter God's Sabbath rest because the task is already finished. It is complete. It has been done. There is no more work or labor for us to possibly do. And still sometimes we try. Still times, sometimes we fret and we fuss about how we earn God's rest. And God is saying, what are you doing? The work is done. To quote Jesus himself, some of the last things that he said before he gave up his life on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work is done. So you can enter God's rest. Not because you're tired, but because the work has already been completed by Jesus. That's the rest that we are invited into. And Jesus himself invites us into God's rest. And that's why we are able to enter. That's why the Israelites didn't need to worry about whether or not the people were strong or their, their strongholds were good or fortified or any of that nonsense. It was just, look, is that good land? Do you want it? I'm giving it to you. And as we look at the kind of life that God is offering us. He is not asking us to earn it. He is not asking us to work hard enough. He is not asking us to tick off boxes on some lengthy checklist. He is saying, do you want rest? Take it. I'm offering it to you because the work is done. It has already been completed. All you have to do is enter it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that I have already done this work for you? So what? So what does this mean to us? And this idea of always, every week, I say this, so what? It is key in this passage here in Hebrews 4. The whole reason that we can say this, written hundreds and even thousands of years ago, can apply to our lives now is the same reason that the author of Hebrews gets to take stories from Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Psalms and apply them to his audience in, first century, uh, in the first century Roman Empire with the Jewish diaspora because of what comes next. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It is present tense. God is now 
today offering us his rest because his word, his revelation, his showing us who he is and inviting us into intimacy with him does not change because God does not change. And when we read his word and we get to know this God, it is a God who has not changed. Not since Hebrews, not since David, not since Moses, not since Abraham, not since he created the universe and everything in it and said, man, that's good. God hasn't changed. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Folks, you can't hide. God's revelation, God showing us who he is and what he is about, you can't hide from him seen into your soul. And this morning, we are laid bare. Some of you got very uncomfortable when I use the phrase naked and exposed. It's in God's word, okay? Some of you are like, what are we doing here at church this morning? It's not me. It's not your friend. You are not exposed or laid bare to your friends or your small group or even your spouse or your closest friends or your parents or your kids. It is God himself who sees right through you, who is asking you these questions and is saying, do you believe me? Do you believe that I have already done the work? Do you today, because it is called today, and it doesn't matter that it's Sunday. I would have said the same thing yesterday. I'll say the same thing tomorrow. Today, he offers it to you and he's saying, do you believe me? Do you believe that I am who I say I am and that I will do what I promised I would do? This is what he does when Jesus invites us into his rest. So let me pose these questions to you as a little bit of a self-diagnostic. I'm not asking for you to give me answers, send in your replies, email, or anything like that. This is just for you, between you and God, because in the eyes of God, you are here now laid bare, and he can see, and his word is active. Are you working hard to earn the peace and intimacy with God that he has already finished, that he has already bought and paid for? Do you feel yourself striving and working so hard to earn God's grace? Or maybe you doubt that it really is available to you. Maybe you doubt that Jesus really has already accomplished the work. It is every bit as foolish as those Israelites in the wilderness saying, sure, the land's great, but I don't know if we can take these giants. And God's going, I have already taken care of that. Maybe you're thinking, I need to earn my way back into God's good graces. I need to earn my way back into him seeing me favorably. I need to work harder in order to have earned this Sabbath rest. God's going, no, you don't. The work is done. It was done on the cross. That's what we do when we take the bread and the cup. We remember that the work has been accomplished so we can sit back and admire it and say, this is good. That's the kind of rest that God is inviting you into. And as I am getting to know all of you 
and all of your different stories, I know that there may be a, a plethora of different uh, experiences and perspectives on how you are entering God's rest and how whether or not you are believing that God really has done what he said he would and that he is who he says he is. But I just want to share with you for me something that's a little bit convicting for me in the ministry world. When we think about God's rest and working hard, there is something, and somebody coined this term throughout the 20th century, known as the evangelical syndrome. This idea that I am so important and so vital in building God's kingdom. And sometimes we can really get that way. We can, you know, you, you ever find yourself thinking, man, God is so lucky to have me. Like, I mean, what on earth would he do without me here building his kingdom? He'd be a wreck. He'd be just up a creek without a paddle. That's absurd. It is my great joy and privilege and pleasure to get to build God's kingdom. But I don't for a minute think that he would be in dire straits without me. I don't for a minute think that I am some vital, pivotal cog in the machinery of building God's kingdom. And I have worked with people who have this mindset, you know, the people who will never take a day off and say things like, well, the devil doesn't take a day off, so neither will I. You're real full of yourself, you know that? <laughs> Do you think somehow that it's what you are doing? It is what God has already did, God has already done, sorry, I forgot English for a moment, <laughs> that we can rest. And enjoying a Sabbath rest is not about saying, I am so tired and I have earned this because I've done this much. Taking a Sabbath rest is about pausing and reflecting on our own place in God's kingdom and realizing, I am so glad he has already accomplished it. I am so glad the work is finished and I just get to enjoy the benefits. And I encourage you in the way that you think about rest, and it's so much more than whether or not we do it on Saturday or Sunday and should the shops be open and how much are you actually like, you know, cooking for dinner versus just ordering pizza or whatever. No, it's about just acknowledging that the work is done, that God did it already. And let me encourage you, incorporate into your Sabbath rest reflection on God's finished work. And maybe if your job is at working at a desk. Sabbath, when you work with your hands, or maybe you work with your hands, take your Sabbath by reading or by enriching your knowledge. Rest in a way that acknowledges I am not some pivotal, priceless, irreplaceable cog in God's kingdom. No, in fact, God has already completed the work, and I'm just admiring it. And even in ministry, this is a big part of sometimes we, we got to take a step back and realize, you know what? I think they'll be okay. <laughs> I think if I'm sick, they'd be all right. I think if I needed to take a break, the church would go on without me. I think if I wasn't here, the church would still thrive and grow as you did for many months without a lead pastor. And even this is a big part of why pastors need sometimes to take a sabbatical. It's a little humbling to realize, oh, 
maybe they're not so 100% dependent on me after all. And it's good to work. It is good to labor. It is good to acknowledge our place within God's kingdom and what he's calling us to. But it's also good to enter into God's rest and acknowledge the work has already been completed. I don't have to break my back trying to earn God's grace because he offers it to me. And he offers it to you too. Would you today, as Jesus invites you, enter God's rest? God, we thank you so much for all the ways that you have shown us throughout history who you are, through the many stories, through your signs and wonders, through miraculous deliverance, through healing, through fire and wind and split seas and food from heaven. You have shown us that you are more than capable that you are omnipotent, all-powerful, and it is all in your control. Father, we apologize. We confess that we don't always acknowledge our rightful place, that sometimes we think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought to, that sometimes we are trying to earn your grace. We are sometimes trying to work hard enough to enjoy the rest that you offer us even though you have already completed the work. I pray that we would acknowledge that, that we would worship you in that spirit this morning and enjoy and appreciate the rest that you offer today. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.